Please join me for a word of prayer. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds, think through them. Take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, adults, I don't want to see any adult using their goodie bags. Those are for kids. Those are, you have to be of a certain age, 10 or below, to uh, actually put the goodie bags to use. A famous director once said there are no small roles, there are only small actors in saying such. He suggested that even in a bit part, a bit part with a very small number of lines, uh, can have a significant role. Barabbas has a small role as the character that we're going to look at today. He has a small role. He says nothing, no words from Barabbas. We know almost nothing about his life. We, he has no interactions with the Lord. The only interaction he has is indirect. He's affected, but there's no direct interaction with, with the Lord. He's mentioned only in a very few number of verses. He has a small role, but he doesn't have an insignificant role. There are no insignificant roles in the Gospels. Every person that we encounter in the Gospels has something to teach us something to reveal to us about how Jesus interacts with us. And this is especially true as we come to the last week of Christ's life. There are no small roles, and especially here at the last week. Barabbas has a small but important role, and I think the reason that his role is important is that Barabbas is the first person, really the only person who can literally say that Jesus died for me. Now we'll come to think that that will come, hopefully through the sermon, we'll come to realize that that is a statement that we all can say, and we all should say, and I hope you all have said, but Barabbas is the first. And Barabbas is the only person who can say that in a literal way, that Jesus died for me. And the significance of Barabbas is reflected that even though it is a very small role, he is recounted in each of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have one or two lines about this character, Barabbas. So that's who we're going to study this day. And as we look at the life of Barabbas, we're going to ask the question, now who is it that Jesus died for? Who, who is grace for? And we're going to find uh, some I hope compelling answers to that question as we look at this text together. So who did Jesus die for? Well, first and foremost, Jesus died for, literally he died for Barabbas. Let's think a little bit about Barabbas. I said we know very little about him and that is true, but we're not, we do know something about Barabbas from each of the four gospels give us a little taste of who this person was. In Mark's gospel, we learned that he was an insurrectionist. Now, remember your history of ancient Near East. Uh, the, the Jewish people were a conquered people, conquered by a deeply irreligious uh, Rome. And the religious sensibilities of the Jewish people were easily offended by the irreligiosity of the people above them. And so revolution, revolt, uh, political foment was the name of the game. There was a, uh, the name Iscariot means dagger. 
And there was a group of revolutionaries named the Iscari. And some have speculated that Judas Iscariot was a member of this revolutionary uh, group called uh, the Iscari, the Dagger People. All that we don't know, it's a little speculative, but it does underscore this opening principle that revolution was just part of the, part of the reality of life in Israel. And Barabbas was an example of that reality. He led an insurrection, trying to overthrow the yoke of the Roman aggressors. But what kind of revolutionary was he? What kind of insurrectionist was he? Well, we learned a little bit more. We're told that he was a murderer. So he took two lives, at least. Now compare Barabbas with, say, someone like Martin Luther King, who was a non-violent protester. Well, clearly, uh, Barabbas had no such scruples about the sanctity of human life. Barabbas uh, took at least two lives. Further, we're told in John's gospel that he was not only a murderer, that he was also a robber. Again, think of some of the political revolutionaries that you may be familiar with through our history. There are some people, whether you agree with the cause or not, they're at least they're committed to a cause. There are some people who are simply in it to make a buck. Opportunistic. Not committed to a cause, but committed instead to themselves. And I suggest that Barabbas was that type of character. No, no regard for human life, not really committed to a cause so much as to committed to his own selfish ends. What we find in Barabbas is he is a, uh, without caveat, an unattractive character. I mention that because many of the, Jesus has many interactions with the down and out of society. Uh, all throughout the gospel, he bumps into people on the edge or on the periphery. Think of the woman at the well, for instance. And most of these stories with the down and out, I think we are our heart goes out in sympathy. It's likely that woman at the well who had had a very checkered past, all of her checkered past was not due to her. And so we have some sympathy. But Barabbas is an unsympathetic character. He's a bad man. Yet this bad man was the first beneficiary of Christ's death. Who did Jesus die for? He died for Barabbas. He died for a bad man. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, Jesus might bring us to God. And Barabbas is a vivid, clear example of the unrighteous. Barabbas is about as far away from God as anyone you could imagine. And yet, as I said, he is a first beneficiary of Christ's death. Who did Jesus die for? He died for the unrighteous. And so here's our first observation, that there is no one so far gone that they are outside the reach of Christ's saving embrace. Not Barabbas, no one. But it gets more interesting. That's our first point. Let me move to our second point. The first point, there is no one beyond the reach of Christ's saving embrace. Second, let's think about that name Barabbas that was referenced in last week's sermon. Now Barabbas, if you cut the name in two, Bar-Abbas, you get an interesting combination. The name Bar or the prefix Bar means son of. So in, for us, we will have 
John sin, son of John, Andrew sin, son of Andrew, right? That's how we indicate son of somebody. In that culture, it would be bar. So you have bar uh, Jonah, son of Jonah, bar Barnabas, uh, Bartholomew, son of Barabbas. Barabbas means son of, what's Abba mean? Abba means father. It's that colloquial familiar term that Jesus used to refer to his heavenly father, daddy. Combined, Combine the name Barabbas, put those two pieces together, and you have something like Barabbas is the son of a father. Today, we simply say he's a father's son. And here's the point. That's, that's a universally applicable name. Every man is a son of a father. Every daughter, every woman is a daughter of a father. This name, Barabbas, could be universally applied to every person or its feminine equivalent. You are all, <laughs> I am, you are, you're all Barabbas. You're all a son of a father, a daughter of a father. If our first observation is that no one is beyond the reach of the saving embrace of Christ, the second observation is that no one is beyond the need of the saving embrace of Christ. You probably know a little bit of the story of the Wesley brothers. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, they eventually would find, uh, be the founders of the Methodist uh, denomination. But in the early stages of their life, they were uh, not a very attractive uh, pair, the brothers. They were failed missionaries. I think the, the phrase, they were horribly good would be an apt description of John and Charles Wesley. Horribly good. I'm drawing that from uh, one of my favorite short stories author named Saki. Anyone know the short stories of H.H. Monroe Saki? Go get the short stories of H.H. Monroe. There's one called The Storyteller in which a bachelor is trying to calm several children in the train next to him. And so the, he tells them a story. And the story goes like this. A bachelor sitting next to a bunch of rowdy kids says, once there was a girl called Bertha. Bertha was extraordinarily good. At this, the children's attention began to wander because all stories had such a predictable pattern. Bertha did everything that she was told. She was always truthful. She kept her clothes clean. The children's attention wanes even further. And then the storyteller says, Bertha was horribly good. And there was a wave of reaction in favor of the story. The word horrible in connection with goodness was a novelty that commended itself. Horribly good. John and Charles Wesley, I suggest to you, were horribly good. They kept the rules. They cleaned their room. I forgot to mention Bertha in the story. She wins awards for her goodness. Charles and John earned medals for their goodness. Yet at some point in time, well, not at some point in time, we know actually the date, May 21st, 1738, first Charles and then John realized that their goodness was insufficient. They realized uh, that they would never be good enough. And so Charles Wesley records in his journal an experience that he had one night where he heard a voice saying, in the name of Jesus, arise and believe. 
And he did. He didn't work. He wasn't, didn't strive. He didn't try to be good or horribly good. He simply trusted that what Jesus did on the cross, Jesus did for him, for Charles. Remember that verse I referenced? That Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Wesley realized for the first time that all of his goodness, the difference between him and Barabbas when compared to the goodness of God was simply a difference lost in the rounding. And he stopped trying to be good, horribly good, and simply trusted that what was done there was done for him. And he wrote a song. The Wesleys are some of the most prolific hymn writers that we've ever encountered. You cannot make it through Christmas without singing at least five of their hymns. But the most famous song that he wrote, Charles wrote, was And Can It Be. He writes, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? be, etc. And then he listened to the third stanza, and I'm not going to have you suffer through my singing. I, is the choir prepped? Yeah? All right. Uh, listen to the third stanza. We have the piano, too. Oh, yeah, great. Uh, listen to the third stanza of where Charles places himself. Now, think of Barabbas, and think of the horribly good Charles Wesley. And he writes this. and followed the Charles Wesley, a good man, horribly good, realized that his goodness wasn't good enough. And his striving was simply making his life miserable and probably the lives of all around him miserable as well. And he simply rested and he trusted that Jesus died for him. What was literally true for Barabbas was figuratively true for Charles our first point, based on our limited yet unflattering picture of Barabbas, is that no one is beyond the saving embrace of Christ. The second point, based upon the universal applicability of Barabbas' name, is that no one is beyond the need of Christ and his saving embrace. I should pause and state that the staff has just returned from a staff conference 
or a conference, which we heard some of the best preachers of today. And many of the thoughts that I'm sharing with you come from what we gleaned from that conference. And one of those, con one of those points was this, that no one is beyond the saving work of Christ, and no one is above the need of the saving work of Christ. And I just want to think with you for a brief moment of how we can apply those two points. No one is beyond, and no one is above. Let's apply the first point. Because no one is beyond the saving work of Christ, you and I should persevere in gentle, persistent, prayerful evangelism. We should pray for people who do not know Christ, that they may come to know and trust in him. We should look for opportunities to not bludgeon anybody, but to gently commend our faith. We should use opportunities like Easter to invite people who do not have a church home to consider the claims of Christ. Because no one is beyond the reach of Christ, you and I should persevere in gentle, persistent, and prayerful evangelism. And on a personal note, I am convinced that I am where I am with the convictions that I have and the vocation that I've responded to, largely in part to, due to a praying mom. When I graduated from college, I was not like Barabbas, but I certainly was not a prime candidate for pastoral ministry. But when there is a praying mom, praying friend, praying dad, a praying somebody, there's hope. Persevere in prayerful, personal, gentle evangelism. Further, persevere in the work of world mission. Let me mention our mission partner, Gatanchu. This summer, we have a group of six people going from the church to support a missionary effort that will take folks, now we won't go, but will take the people we will support, will head to areas like Somalia. And Somalia is a place that is almost devoid of the name of Christ. And people growing up in Somalia, living in Somalia, have just as much chance of Barabbas responding to the word of, God, of grace in Christ as Barabbas did. So we must persevere in the work of world evangelism. Why? Because no one is beyond the saving love of Christ. Secondly, let me apply our second point. Because no one is beyond the need for the saving love of Christ, we should persevere in preaching to ourselves. Let me explain. Let's imagine Barabbas. Let's imagine his experience. Imagine Barabbas stuck in prison. He's chained to the wall. He's thinking about what all condemned men think about. He's seen crucifixion. He knows how awful it is. So that's what he's thinking about. Let's imagine that the events around Jesus' life occurred close to where Barabbas was kept. Let's imagine he heard the crowd shouting, Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. Let's imagine that Barabbas heard the shouts of crucify, crucify. Let's imagine that Barabbas heard the key turn in the door. And let's imagine that the jailer stands in front of him and what he can only imagine is his executioner. And instead, that jailer says, Barabbas, you're free to go. And Barabbas, in his bewilderment, says, why, how, what happened? 
And the jailer says, look, I don't know. They're taking some guy named Jesus and they're letting you go. So, so get gone. And Barabbas does. Now I know this is all dramatic, but bear with me. Let's imagine that Barabbas continued just out of curiosity, thought that, hmm, I wonder who it is that's dying in my place. Let's imagine he fishes his way through the crowd and sees the man. Let's imagine further that he uh, makes his way with the motley crew to Golgotha and sees what should have happened to him. Now, let's be really dramatic. Let's imagine that at some moment their eyes meet, that Jesus sees him and he sees Jesus. And let's imagine that there's some sort of exchange of beyond and above words where Barabbas realizes that that man was an innocent man and Jesus in turn communicates that what he did, I am doing, I am doing for you, Barabbas. Maybe Barabbas went through this thought process. That could have happened to me. That could have been me. Maybe he took it a step further and thought, huh, that, that should have happened to me. I, I should be there. Maybe he thought even further, that would have been me had not my Savior loved me so. And I, I walk us through this hopefully not overly dramatic exercise because I think it's a helpful thing for us. There's that old gospel hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there like Barabbas was there? And the answer to that rhetorical question as we gather for worship, as we come and receive around his table is, I hope, yes. Yes, I was there. I can imagine it. I can meditate. I can envision it. I was there. And like Barabbas, we can think, ah, that could have been me. Further, that, that should have been me. And finally, that, that would have been me. Had not my Savior loved me so. Never tire of preaching of yourself, preaching to yourself. Reminding yourself that you, like everybody else, is a sinner saved by grace. Reminding you, reminding me, that our hope is in not who we are or what we do. Our hope is in what has been done for us. So let me conclude. Barabbas teaches us two things. He teaches us that no one is beyond the reach of Christ. Therefore, persevere in gentle, persistent, prayerful evangelism. It teaches us that no one is beyond the need of Christ. Therefore, we should never tire of preaching to ourselves. Jesus died for me. The righteous for the unrighteous. And while Barabbas is the first person who could say, Jesus died for me, he's not the last. <laughs> millions and millions and millions of people and many here, and I hope if not yet then soon, have confessed this simple statement which confesses his love for us and our need for him. That Jesus died for me.